welcome to this episode of the 10K Media Podcast. Today, I have with me Peyton O'Neill, who's the Director of Marketing at Apiro, which is a cloud application security company. Peyton, how are you doing? Great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for uh, joining. Peyton and I, 10K Media, worked with Bridge Crew, which was the startup that Peyton was at before Apiro that was acquired by Prisma Cloud, which was an interesting experience. But Yes, but Peyton, your 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 experience in cybersecurity goes all the way back to Bug Crowd in 2015. If uh, LinkedIn is is honest with me here, so how how did you kind of get into cybersecurity marketing? Yeah, end of 2014, beginning of 2015, um, got in touch with um, an awesome kind of that was when like growth hacking was in vogue awesome marketer over there um kind of through chance honestly uh through our university and a a mutual professor and kind of like shared vision and uh like approach to marketing um at the time like if you'd asked me if I was a marketer or, or liked marketing I would have said absolutely not. Um, but loved sort of the journey of creating value and kind of infusing really good design. I've always loved design, minored in design, love print design um, with, you know, solving really hard challenges and sort of connecting the dots between those challenges and your solution. So Saw kind of like a multidisciplinary opportunity at Bug Crowd. Awesome people, awesome founders, and you know, early kind of early days um, startup scene there in San Francisco. We had a funny little uh, Soma office that was hilarious, um, and just like great time, great sort of like scrappy sales team, and very quickly saw how amazing the community was specifically AppSec and, you know, continued to see, you know, all a couple different aspects of cybersecurity in general, um, took a little hiatus, went more into, I actually did an interesting stint, um, at a paid social advertising agency, uh, where I got to kind of see how B2C marketers did things very data-driven, very, what we call direct response. Um, here's a thing. Here's why it's great. Check it out, buy it, track it. Everything is tracked and was like, why are B2B marketers not doing it this way? And very quickly realized that a services company wasn't for me. And I needed to work again on a product, um, again, solving hard problems through technology and went to a, a DevOps software testing company where kind of started applying those B2C tactics to a, a B2B model, um, which is, was not then called product-led growth, but uh, very quickly became product-led growth. Um, and then took that kind of DevOps foundation to Bridge Crew, got to bring together kind of like the security background, the DevOps approach and culture and the PLG um, marketing tactic uh, to cloud security, shift left cloud security. Um, 
which was very successful, too successful, very, very quick, 10 months from kind of coming out of like officially launching and me joining to being acquired by Palo Alto, which was quite the journey. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it really worked out for the Bridge Crew founders, which are great, great guys. Amazing. Yes. They're good. Yes. Um, It was heartbreaking initially, mostly just not being able to work with them day to day. Obviously an incredible, you know, accomplishment and so happy for all of us, them. Great, great outcome. But yeah, mostly just sad I didn't get to work with them every day. No, I hear you. Well, you've now joined a new, uh, you know, sort of AppSecy cloud security startup called Apiro. They've raised a lot of money. They're having a lot of success. Um, Before we get the high pitch on sort of what Apiro is all about, what do you think is keeping you in this domain? It seems like, you know, really security in this space seems to... um, yeah, do something for you that, that that you keep sort of staying within this universe? It's a good question. I don't think I'm, I would love to have like an, an altruistic answer, like protecting people's digital ways of life, like the Palo Alto mission. It's not really that, but I do love... A, I think there's like endless, endless opportunity and challenges to solve Um, through technology, through culture, through people, through process. It's, there's so many aspects, even just in AppSec, there's so many different ways to solve this problem of how to build and deliver secure software. Um, And the people I find that have been drawn to solving that problem I just kind of like and get along with. There's a lot of weird folks. There's a lot of brilliant, uh, very creative thinking, growth mindset people in this space. Um, And I really just want to keep working with people like that. Well, that makes sense to me. So what is it about Apiro now? Can you give us the sort of the skinny on, you know, obviously you were at Prisma Cloud, which was the sort of, DevSecchi division, right, of, of mm-hmm. uh, Palo Alto mm-hmm. after the Bridge Crew acquisition. And that was a, a big company. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Palo Alto is one of the biggest, you know, cybersecurity companies. And so uh, did you want to get back sort of more on ground level with a startup again? Or uh, and, and what particularly about Apiro sort of drew you over there? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone that's met me, even like briefly, probably could guess I'm not a huge company person. Um, I'm a little scrappy and, you know, like to have big impact in a lot of different things, love working, uh, you know, cross-functionally, and it's just really hard to do in a bigger company, not to mention all of the layers of process and, um, baggage that you have to deal with. Um, so yeah, that was definitely I, I actually had an incredible time working with the folks at Prisma Cloud, awesome people, um, actually an awesome product, um, really, I think, a, a visionary product um, and great leadership over at Palo Alto. But yeah, ultimately, I, I think having a bigger impact was the thing that keeps me coming back to smaller companies. Um, 
and and why Apiro? So at Bridge Crew, we were really kind of like writing the playbook for what shift left security meant for the cloud. That manifested as for first it was like just Terraform security, looking at Terraform modules and templates. Um, translating what we already knew were misconfigurations in the cloud into machine readable policies and checking those templates against, the, against those policies, which, you know, seems, of course, very simple. And, um, you know, in some ways we did oversimplify it, um, but really like came with this whole new kind of cultural paradigm, I think, for cloud security and even in some ways, like AppSec, of course, like DevSecOps has been around for much longer than Bridge Crew. But I, I think like how much buzz and how much like logic we brought to this problem, which is if you shift security earlier in the development lifecycle, whether it's an IDE or a pull request, you surface that feedback, you give them everything they need to fix it. Um, the earlier you catch it and prevent those things from progressing through the development lifecycle, um, the more efficient you are. There's like the old uh, cost of a bug, which is, you know, in design to development to production is, you know, it gets exponentially more and more expensive. So it logically makes a lot of sense. And at Bridge Crew, which was really awesome, is we had we got to tap into this community and kind of like build the community around infrastructure as code security with Chekhov um, and just see like how really this is a, a big opportunity and challenge and um, sort of, you know, shape that. Um, yeah. Then, you know, as time goes on the, and kind of in parallel with just the evolution of cloud native uh, applications in general, the lines between infrastructure and applications start to blur. Um, and they've been blurring for the past couple of years. So we, you know, start to get into more application stuff. Solar winds happen, supply chain security becomes a thing. Those lines kind of get blurred. You have open source components and SEA tools to secure those. You have, now you have to worry about your pipelines and your source control manager and your code is stored in the source control manager and it's being compiled and delivered and deployed in your pipeline. So all of these kind of things are getting smushed together and there's like unique technology problems and solutions for all of them. But the culture has kind of converged and it's really to me just interesting and I love it. Um, and I think Apiro, does that really well. And that's, I think I, I, there's an incredible opportunity to make that culture with this problem that the market has not been able to solve. And also even like kind of more antiquated, more like unsexy problems, just like broadly around risk management into this really compelling uh, solution and what I hope to be a very compelling brand. So what what exactly is Apiro tackling as a platform? What what problem is it particularly trying to grapple with, and and how does it try to grapple with it? 
Yes, um, Apiro's mission when you when you boil it down is really to help security and development teams um, develop and deliver secure products. Um, we have a you know a keen interest in cloud native technologies, and our, our platform is built for cloud native applications. Um, you know that's our bread and butter. Uh, and we take kind of like a three-pronged approach. So we start with visibility. Uh, we know that in order to secure what you have, you need to know what you have. So um, it's a pretty simple initial setup, uh, integrating with your source control manager, uh, getting a lay of the land, understanding your application architecture. Uh, we also integrate across the development lifecycle to get uh, context of your runtime environment, even your design environment. Um, we analyze even your, you know, JIRA issues uh, for, for risks there. Um, and then the, the second part is understanding your risk. Um, I like to say we're like kind of making risk sexy. Uh, we, we understand deeply what your application looks like. We take security signals from tools, uh, third-party tools, our own security solutions, uh, correlate them, deduplicate them, prioritize them, uh, and then give you all the context you need for the third component, which is fixing them. Um, and taking that, we do that by taking your sort of risk threshold and applying that uh, as earlier, as early in the development lifecycle as possible. I'm curious how you think about messaging in the security world because you know for me uh when i started 10k media it was very much a devops pr firm um, mm -hmm. as a mission statement and dev secops hadn't really solidified and this was only 2020 so not, not that really that long ago um and it seems like in a way, DevSecOps is obviously the security space in a lot of ways is, is even more mature, but the DevSec specifically seems to be catching up and that now it's much more standard for dev and ops to, you know, you build it, you own it, ship left stuff. Whereas in the security world, it seems like it's a little more splintered where you have like the traditional security teams that still do things more top down. And then you have the ship left developer stuff. And so uh, how, how do you message to these different demographics where you have traditional security on one hand and developers on the other, or you have very top-down, heavy enterprise messaging, but then you also maybe want to have like a bottom-up TLG motion? Um, curious how you think about balancing all that. Yeah, and it's been interesting um, kind of comparing our messaging strategies from Bridge Crew and even Prisma cloud to like more of like a hard, hardcore AppSec audience. Um, we think of it in a couple ways. Of course, we have like the different personas. You have more of like your hands on keyboard practitioner type folks. You have the decision makers that are, you know, concerned with the business and managing team resources. And then you have your like more economic buyers, your CISOs, uh, the folks that are writing the checks um, and reporting the big metrics to the board or, or whoever. Um, so we have sort of pillars for each of those. They're kind of what you would expect 
then you have like to answer your question about between like dev devops and security it gets kind of more interesting um at, at bridge crew and in i think the, the cloud security world or workload security world it's a little different you have these like much more integrated disciplines where you have devops is oftentimes devops are writing you know your terraform um or you have a a, a dev team that is dedicated to infrastructure you have your cloud architects and they're working a lot a little bit more closer closely with the security teams cloud security what have you um whereas in appsec it's traditionally a little bit more siloed you have developers you have your appsec teams um i, I think it's changing like theoretically it would be great to have like dedicated appsec folks on product teams again you run into issues of resourcing and um, like the question of, do you actually need that if you have true shift left security, DevSecOps, guardrails, whatever. Um, but it is I, I, like for now and for the you know short-term future, it is much more siloed. So Apiro, like first and foremost, foremost, we are selling to AppSec um, and we have to remember that, but AppSec is nothing without developers. So we're communicating that value of making developers' lives easier, reducing that friction, um, reducing you know, any blocked builds, blocked pull requests, whatever, um, with false positives, uh, not to developers, but to AppSec teams. Um, and so that's, it's becoming easier over time as like AppSec teams understand how development life cycles work, what their workflows look like, what, their, what tools they're using, um, where it was a little bit more challenging before because it was like a foreign, a little bit of foreign concepts there. Um, but yeah. So yeah, I assume as, as these worlds, you know, blend together, that also has to make PLG easier, right? I mean, do you see any friction with the buyer persona being, you know, maybe slightly different or in some companies totally different than what the end user or who the end user would actually be? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think um, in our case, there you can look at end user a couple ways. Um, at the end of the day, like that the application security function still is the end user in that they own the definition of risk. But again, they depend on uh, developers and have to be in their workflows to be able to enforce that definition. So you kind of have like the security end user who cares about, you know, understanding risk, which requires visibility into whatever developers are doing um, and then enforcing that risk. But then you also have the end user of the developer who is the one that's gonna get pissed off or, you know, not if they're not, you know, blocked on their next commit. Right. That makes sense. So I'm curious how you feel about one thing I learned pretty quickly from, from, you know, sort of getting involved with, with the cybersecurity DevSec universe a little more over the past couple of years. It's just the sheer amount of acronyms that are used in this space. Um, you know, ASPM and SBOM and SCA. And I'm curious just as a marketer, how you feel about them. Do you think they provide, um, I don't know, some sort of like goalpost that you can sort of orient yourself around or 
or are they a bit cumbersome at times and limiting in a way because you sort of have to shove yourself into one even if you don't necessarily want to um yeah i'm just curious how, how you feel about these sort of you know the acronym overload happening in security yeah it's always been a thing if you're not aligned to an acronym you're creating an acronym we just created a new acronym recently we unveiled uh, our extended approach to software bill of materials which is xbomb um catchy marketing name but also a very solid solution to a pervasive problem um, I like and i like the maybe can we can we can we uh you know double click on this sure. because so sbom is software bill of materials right and it's basically just an inventory of what you have yes thank you for saying that so <laughs> sbombs there's a little bit of debate in my opinion uh the market generally understands sbomb to be a list of your open source dependencies was that the intention with SBOM? No, the intention was for SBOM to be a list of all of your software components. Um, unfortunately, like the solutions out there didn't deliver that. Uh, very few actually include multiple types of components, their connections, um, the associated risks, whether it's a known CVE or a license compliance issue, uh, you know, they truly just provided a list, which is now required. Um, the White House put out an executive order that anyone supplying software to the government had to have an SBOM, which is great. Like that is what we need. We need to be making progress. We need to be aware of what we have so that we can better protect it. But traditional SBOM, not the solution. Um, and that said, like organizations like Cyclone DX and even like Salsa are very well aware of that gap and are like making strides and um, investing in making SBOM much more expansive um, and a very, very sort of, in my opinion, aligned to what we uh, are aligned to this XBOM concept, which includes everything. Right. So your IAC, your container images, your open source packages, your pipelines, your repositories, all your data models and APIs, and um, even like how your security tooling interacts with those components and how the components interact with each other. And, you know, the, the typical metadata, like name, where it came from, uh, developer attached to something. Um, and associated risks and even like in in many cases like the runtime contact so all of oh and how everything changes over time that's a big one uh because if you have an sbom just like a point in time list it's outdated the second you export it um these modern applications are evolving so quickly um so having some a solution that is real time continuous and understands that things are changing and sometimes those changes cause risks uh, is really important. So uh, at Apiro, that's what we're aligning to. Uh, it's just one part of the puzzle. So if you look at like the Apiro product, not to get too in the weeds here, but 
that's just the, the visibility and the understanding portion. So you have to know everything you have in order to secure it. Um, kind of to tie into your acronym question, I'll throw another acronym in. The acronym of the year for us, uh, ASPM, Application Security Posture Management. Gartner, shout out Gartner. Uh, just put out uh, an innovation insight report, which is kind of like the, the beginnings of a market category. Um, so the idea with ASPM is you bring together all of these security signals. You have an SEA tool, you have a SaaS tool, you have um, API security tool, DAST, whatever. You bring those together you correlate them, you deduplicate them based on root cause. Um, and then ideally you have some understanding of your architecture of your application and you have an, a definition of risk and, and business risk and what you know the impact to certain parts of your business means. And you're able to prioritize alerts. So this goes back to what kind of we were talking about and what Apiro's mission is. It's really minimizing alerts and focusing on what matters. And you can only do that through prioritization and you can only prioritize if you have a really deep and graph-based understanding of your application. And then the last piece is remediation. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I you know, I, so 10K Media just started working with Apiro and XBOM was sort of the first Thing that was already in the oven, um, you know, when when we started working together. But it was interesting to see, and you know, just for listeners to make sure, because S and X can sound actually pretty similar, right? So the the standard acronym is S bomb, and then Apiro came up with X bomb to sort of play on it being an extended, a a better everything S bomb, right? And so, how do you make that decision between? Because I'm sure other Companies may struggle with this too, from like a marketing positioning perspective. Um, you know, in security, it seems like creating a new category is creating a new acronym. But you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it's category creation, right? Um, how, how do you decide? Okay, we're just going to be S bomb, but we're going to try to get in the top right corner because we're doing it better and we're doing it more improved. And we can talk about why normal S bomb is insufficient and ours is so much better. Or to say, you know what, we don't really, what we think what we're doing is different enough to warrant sort of its own play, its own category, its own acronym. Um, is, is there any, I don't know, advice or you can give people who may be struggling with that same thing about trying to fit into a category versus just sort of creating their own? Yeah, I think, so for SBOM, it's kind of interesting. I wouldn't quite say SBOM is a category um, but the question still stands, like, when do you decide to create something new rather than a line? And more often than not, it's usually both. Um, I'll, I'll even take like ASPM, for example. Um, when you have like a well-defined category, it's great because bigger organizations will have fundable projects to buy that thing. Um, but it's also a very defined thing. And most companies aren't going to fit perfectly in one category or they might not fulfill all requirements of one category. So it's really important to understand um, like what you do and don't align with 
definitely make the most of that market as you can. Um, it's much easier aligning to an existing market than creating a new one, but there's a ton of value in either, you know, taking a new spin on something or combining things or, um, you know, you have to stand out from the crowd doing something a little bit differently, whether it's with your brand or with it, with your product or your go-to-market motion, um, for us in ASPM, you know, we don't just do what now Gartner has defined as ASPM. We also have native solutions, which makes us different. Uh, we have our own SCA platform solution. We have our own secrets capability, API security testing, um, SBOM, XBOM. Um, so those are things that like you can't, you risk losing you know, the, the, the spotlight on those things by only aligning to one thing. Uh, so it's always a balance. Uh, I think if you can ride any coattails do, uh, but definitely don't get pigeonholed into just one thing. I think that's good advice. Um, especially as, you know, a company matures and, and sort of, you're going to have to right branch out and do more than just be a point solution at some point. And I, I think or get acquired. It's a great yeah. outcome. Great outcome. Getting acquired is good. In fact, it's it's really fun to focus on one problem and do that really, really well. Right. Um even even Bridge Crew, I, you know, we solved that IAC security problem and you know we're successful. It was a real problem real people every single day needed help enforcing policies and code. And, you know, we were the ones to do it. How important do you think it is that at least one of the executives or, or founders at a startup gets marketing, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously some startups start with the co-founder being a CMO. Um, and that, you know, obviously is indicative of something, but a lot of the times it's just the CEO and a CTO maybe. And, uh, you know, at some point they realize they, they, they want to do some marketing. Um, but I've worked with, you know, everything from people who, who genuinely just love marketing. They love speaking. They love being on camera. They love brand. They don't need all of the tangible justifications for those efforts in terms of revenue, right? All the way to somebody who really thinks marketing is all fluff. And unless you can like show a very clear uh, line between what the initiative was and the revenue it generated later or the people it acquired or, or whatever, they, they really don't want to be a part of it or to give budget to it. Um, or yeah, even I, better, it could be both <laughs> in one. They want, they want it all. They want, they know you need an amazing brand, but marketing is, you know, not showing results. So yeah, well, that's, that's what you don't want. You don't want, okay, fair. Well, yes, I've been very fortunate to work with uh, a lot of CEOs that understand the value in like very deep ways um, and in very different ways. Um, and oftentimes in my experience, now I've worked with several CEOs, worked for several CEOs, several first-time marketers, first-time marketing in a company. 
um, or early or you know rebuilding whatever um, and oftentimes a CEO thinks they need one thing and as soon as you start getting dug in and time goes on you realize it might be the other thing usually it's between like product marketing and positioning and messaging and building content versus growth marketing demand gen you know creating creating leads creating pipeline um and that's why i love doing this because you get to do both in the same breath and it's much more efficient to have somebody in my humble opinion uh that knows how to do both that like can speak both languages and can take inputs into the other function right you're you're learning from your ads and feeding that back into the messaging you're you know honing your positioning and and using that to inform your campaigns like having that be such a like a consistent cycle is very efficient and I think the CEOs, the founders that understand that uh, are the best and the ones that I really love working with the most. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, I've worked with many marketers and you're one of the more technical ones, I would say, who have a, you know, a genuine understanding both of a technical product but also the technical you know marketing components like running ads and demand gen and you know trying to, to HubSpot shout out to HubSpot HubSpot my hubby <laughs> um I'm curious if you think one is more important than the other like if you're a mm. startup who can only hire one head of marketing and let's let's say just like you know you're you're an early stage thing your first marketing hire would you would you uh, recommend someone who leaned more towards narrative and creative and fun and good at now you know storytelling, um, or just someone who knows how to qualify leads, knows how to do demand gen, knows how to build a, a pipeline, um, or, or do you think you know uh, like how, how much of a unicorn is someone who can do both in one package? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And I think it totally depends on the existing team. If you have, um, if you have a super technical person that understands the the like founder, executive, whatever team uh, that understands the landscape, like very sort of like naturally or deeply understands the target market, target personas, um, you can usually get a story out of that. So in that case, maybe like having somebody with really strong, like strategic product marketing chops is less important, especially because at like an early stage, things are pretty fluid. So, you know, having that like central knowledge be with the founder, exec, executive, CTO, whoever, CEO, isn't the worst thing. Um, and having, having a marketer that can do things like hard skills is very important. Whether like everything from ordering napkins, branded napkins for an event and running social media and staging a blog in WordPress and 
building a lead life cycle and building a relationship between marketing and sales, like that's really important. Um, but if, and probably more common, you're in the situation than of CEO, CTO, founding team that like doesn't have a story. Like if they're successful to the point where they're hiring marketing, they probably have the story. They probably have some notion of product market fit. Um, so short answer, probably skew a little bit towards like somebody that can do marketing. Um, if you can do have somebody who can do marketing and is a great storyteller, amazing. They can learn the product. They can learn the, the space. No problem. I'm curious how you think about also, uh, paid initiatives I, in my experience. And it's, I think it's justified over the past, I don't know, let's say just since the beginning of the new year, uh, I felt a lot of companies that I work with really tighten their budgets mm. a lot and become a lot more conscious and, and hesitant to spend money on anything from ads to events. Um, do you, do you yeah. have any insight into why that may be? And, and I don't know if it's fair to, to lump all these things in, right? I mean, obviously evaluating whether to run digital ads is a little bit of a different discussion of whether or not to sponsor an event, for example. But ultimately, how do you think about budget? And do you think people being more conscious of it is a, is a good thing in the long run for, for them? Was this a necessary sort of hunkering down on marketing budgets? Yeah, I mean, I, I generally, in every aspect of my life, think it's probably a good idea to approach things sustainably and holistically and um, that has tangible outcomes. Sometimes marketing feels like it doesn't, like sometimes it's working and you can't really tell why. And sometimes it's not working and you can't really tell why. Other times with, for example, digital ads, like you can very much quantify what is and what isn't working. Um, sometimes events, although it gets, you know, a little bit fuzzier. Um, and at the end of the day, everybody has different priorities, different phases of their business and growth and, um, you know, requirements and things that were promised and growth trajectories. So the one thing that like, it, it depends, like the, the short answer, the long answer is it depends. But for me, the one thing that I always go back to is like, you're always going to have multiple priorities. It's always going to be hard to choose just one. Um, and if you can invest money in something that ticks multiple boxes, do that one. Um, especially in earlier stage uh, companies, like don't just do, you know, paid social ads for competitive to just, you know, beat the competition, do it in a way that is actually capturing intent and inspiring awe and generating leads, of course, and opportunities. Um, same with events, like you're not doing an event just for brand awareness or just lead gen. It has to be a combination of both and pick the events that do the best for both of those things. Um, same with like peer review sites and um, even like display advertising, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, this is a brand play, but like, could it be more than a brand play? Um, so yeah, just trying to tick, tick more boxes where you can 
is I think the the best use of money. Mm. Yeah, I like that advice because I think, I mean, obviously, for example, PR is very much just on the awareness side of things, right? Harder, harder to measure ROI in, in dollars a lot of the time, but in my experience- Not with you. I, I think you do a really good job kind of going beyond that. It's like, it's brand, it's community, it's, um, you know, making actual relationships and in, in, in those communities that result in deals. Um, but yeah, harder to track. <laughs> yeah, no, but I appreciate that. I mean, because you do have to, you know, uh, even as a service offer, offer those things. But but fundamentally, there's a funny thing that happens when a company is like really positioned well and getting good stories. I think Gremlin was a good example of this for a little while where really, you know, uh, the CEO was hearing all the time that um, people were just hearing about them and it mm -hmm. was come later or it would come. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Um, it was everywhere. Yeah. And I think um, you feel it when a competitor is doing it. I've also seen that, right? I've seen a company sort of tighten their budgets around these things and marketing and brand awareness and whatever, but then they see their competitor at all the events and they see their competitors doing display ads everywhere and they see their competitors, you know, making noise. And then that sort of is like, uh, their sort of, uh, spark to be like, Oh, you know, we need to, we need to maybe step up a little bit, but, um, I, I like the, the, the advice to try to do things that, um, scratch both itches. And a lot of times publication, even if it's not in the same opportunity, but within the same ecosystem, you could scratch both, both itches, right? Like you have, publications that cover news but then you build relationships and you can do webinars and you can totally. you know, sort of scratch both and get both going in a way that that complement one another but it feels like to really do that effectively you need someone who's done it before and knows how to navigate it right and so I guess um, maybe my last question is for anyone who's listening who's looking to hire uh, a uh, you know head of marketing where do they find their patent? Someone who's oh. someone who understands the the technical demand gen ROI side, but also the storytelling brand, you know, visual fun side. Um, yeah, how, how do they suss it out? Oh, I like genuinely don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they all have like typically they would have worked somewhere else which had marketing and a lot of the CEOs I worked with were like passion have been very passionate about brand and the message and storytelling and content like they understand like if marketing is very visible it's very tangible people read content watch videos see logos have opinions about colors have opinions about t-shirt brands. Like it's kind of like, a, it's very accessible, but like the perception is it's very accessible. So I think A, you have CEOs that have biased opinions about what marketing is and isn't, and they have thoughts on what their company is and isn't. Um, and I think that sometimes is more important than the, the talent. So it's more like, they're looking for somebody to uh, like just execute on their vision um, rather than getting the right people with the right 
hard and soft skills to elevate and evolve and um, like pass the torch, pass the baton to Mm. the couple of like gigs that I'm so glad I didn't take or even didn't get were exactly that a leader looking for somebody with all of these, you know, soft and hard skills, storytelling and strategic thinking and problem solving growth mindset and can, you know, write content and maybe even like design skills. But then when it came down to it, they just wanted somebody to facilitate their vision. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, I think the only like, now I'm helping marketers not fall into traps, but I, I think for leaders too, like don't fall into that trap. Like, yes, your intuition and your gut and your hard work got you to this place where you're now, you know, you have the money to hire a marketer. Um, but that's like step one is, you know, having them take over that vision and, and taking it to a whole new level. No one person is going to be uh, the heart and soul of a company and, and intelligence and knowledge of a company forever. Well, I think that's good advice. So where can people find a Piro both <laughs> online and uh, events coming up? Maybe if, if, uh, if people listening may happen to be at the same place. Yeah, we will be at um, Info Security Europe this month. Next month, we'll be at the AWS Summit in New York, which is where I am. I'm very excited. I'll be there. Um, and then, of course, we'll be at Black Hat. Very good. Uh, and it's apiro.com. People want to get started, give it a spin, check it out. So you heard it here first or second or third. Apiro.com. This is the 10K Media Podcast. Till next time.